Hello and welcome to The Shindig with Rubicon Heritage and Red River Archaeology. My name is Tanai Jurgensen, and today Jonathan Miller and I sat down with Dr. Tom Horn to discuss his new book, A Viking Market Kingdom in Ireland and Britain, Trade Networks and the Importation of a Southern Scandinavian Silver Bullion Economy. Hi, I'm Tom Horn. I've been studying um, early medieval history really since, I suppose, undergraduate, where I read ancient modern history at Oxford. And I, I mainly concentrated on the Romans. But within that, I got interested in, in, in that sort of period in the sort of later Roman Empire, what was probably even then might have still been referred to as, as, as the Dark Ages and just what was happening in that change between the, the Roman world and, and the early medieval world. And I, I left uh, after after doing my undergraduate and I worked I worked in various things to do with like research, but I came back to academia and to do a master's and that was uh, essentially in early medieval archaeology and that was at Glasgow. Within that, that's where I got interested really properly, specifically in the Vikings. And within that, I got interested in what was happening with these beautiful little silver coins coming from would be called Central Asia or some people would say this Middle East and we're ending up in, 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 in the Viking world. The rest, as they say, is, is, is history. And yeah, I got opportunity to produce a book on the theme of, of what's happening with these coins and more generally with, with trade and how the, the Eastern world was interacting with the, the Scandinavian Baltic and, and, and in Ireland and in Britain. And um, yeah, I've just that's that's the book that I've just finished, and hopefully uh, we'll have a, a nice chat about it today, and, and hopefully um, people enjoy it. And what is the book that you just wrote? What is it called? So yeah, the, the title of my book is "A Viking Market Kingdom in Ireland and Britain," and the the subtitle is "Trade Networks and the Importation of a Southern Scandinavian." silver bullion economy but I think the main the main thing is where I ended up with the research where I ended up with the book was I was looking at this market kingdom in Ireland and Britain that the Vikings appear to have established and appear to have very very much deliberately done so. What exactly is a market kingdom because I think that we are more familiar with the idea of a territorial kingdom so how would you define a market kingdom? I would define a market kingdom as one that, yeah, is, is, is less to do with control of large swathes or swaths of, of territory. It's about controlling what are known as nodes or, or nodal points. So these are essentially in the context of, of trade and exchange. You're, you're talking about markets. So a market kingdom is essentially a kingdom that involves control of one or more large markets that are that are probably you know fairly regularly linked wherever possible and it's really about the influence control is probably too 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 strong uh, a word to say because it's difficult to control things in in any period certainly in the medieval period to control individual routeways and trade routes but you're essentially trying to attract the traders that are operating in this network which may have existed before that you establish these um, nodal markets but you're trying to attract traders to them because what you want to do is you, you want to make money reliably if you can do that with warfare that's fine although that's a very high risk way of doing things 
in all societies, the best way to do it is by taxing other people's efforts, essentially. So if you can sit there in your in your markets, your nodal markets that are connected in this sort of very sort of loose kingdom and collect tolls and, and taxes from this trade, and you'll get gifts and you'll get connections through that as well. That's really what you want to, to set up. So essentially, this is something that appears to sort of begin in the Scandinavian Baltic. They, they sort of realize that if you can essentially control or influence a trade route and get these traders to sort of pay visits to your markets, you'll make more money than the neighboring kingdom or the neighboring village or, or whatever the, the, the political structure that you're operating within is. And then you become stronger through that and you can you pay for more ships you can pay to keep more war bands or whatever it is you want to do beyond that but uh, that's what it is it's just the sort of an efficient way to take control where possible of trade routes and use use markets to do that this might be a dumb question but like were the vikings the first capitalists now, um, there are several chapters um, <laughs> where you have to sort of go back in and essentially what happens is there's a lot of argument about that debate. You know, is capitalism and post a thing we can only talk about as a post-industrial phenomenon? And in the past, Viking scholarships has, has, has gone both ways. It's gone, the Vikings are essentially exactly like us. You know, it's a sort of capitalist economy. And then there's reactions against that and say, Absolutely no. At that stage of societal development, capitalism wasn't really a thing. It was a thing you might do occasionally, but it really, you know, everything is sort of socially embedded. And then there's a reaction against that again. And there, there was there was a sort of seesaw between that. And eventually what we got to was with Ingrid Gustin, Dagfrin, Scray, and various people started to talk about things as, okay, trade is something that's probably fairly universal we look at anthropological studies now not ones that were done in the 20s and 30s and they don't have those sort of, sort of racial bias elements when they're like you know people out with to western europe and north america can't can't conceive of, of trade and certainly couldn't have done it in pre-industrial period and now those studies are, are much better people are going well actually it looks like in every society in which you look there is capitalism you know whatever you want to call it there's you know there's commerce certainly and I think the Viking Scandinavians are are no different. I think it's just a case of efficiencies. They're better at it with the ships and the methods, you know, setting up of these kingdoms, these trade kingdoms, these market kingdoms. I just think they're better at it. So they're kind of, if they're not the first capitalists, the first venture capitalists, in, in a sense of like, on, <laughs> they, they venture out and, and find more capitalism so that they're better at it and they're they're they're, they're noted for it. So I think, yeah, they're the first sort of like ultra- capitalists of, of their medieval period i think i think that's the way we understand the, the viking age best if we if we try to look beyond the, the sort of war bands and say okay what's funding these war bands why are they invested in taking particular towns be dublin or, or york why are they doing that and i think hopefully what my research has done is sort of saying okay maybe there is a sort of commercial logic behind that I have, I have so many questions, Tom. Like, <laughs> yeah, you do. You do in your research focus specifically on Dublin and York. And so, why why were those two towns or cities? Various uh, definitions for that, especially during that time. But, but but why those two market towns in particular? There were several reasons. I mean, of course, with all these research things, this sort of you sort of gradually get towards a point where you say, okay, these, these towns or cities are particularly important for some reason. In terms of 
looking at commerce and markets and, and trade and, and what I think is going on in, in, in Ireland and Britain, you know, from the, from the, and we're talking about this at mid ninth century, so the late fifties until the, the mid 10th century, so the nine fifties or so, I wanted to see what set them aside, you know, why, as we're talking about earlier, why war bands are interested in taking these locations, if not having a, a pre-existing town or settlement on them, why they're interested in these sites and if there's a pre-existing town or settlement as in as in York you know why why do they want to take that one as opposed to other ones on on offer and um, I think what I did was I looked I wanted in terms of you know my methodology of my research I wanted to find out why particular certainly high value commodities were being found where they were being found and that's something that had been looked at in the past and had been looked at currently in Scandinavian homeland and the Scandinavian Baltic Studies by Scandinavian academics. Um, there was also Alfred uh, P. Uh, Smith, who, who looked at the connections between Dublin and York as well. So people had sort of said, these seem to be connected. We knew historically, obviously, there was there was a, 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 sort of a kingdom connecting the two. So, but that's, you know, as it were, that's literally old news. People knew about that. So what I looked at was the work of people like Alfred Smith. And then I thought, okay, her people looking at how you know trade items get found in sufficient quantities and bulk quantities at certain sites and if you look at research in the Scandinavian Baltic and Scandinavia proper they've been looking at this data that I've been looking at for much longer so they've been looking at dirhams they've been looking at you know amber distributions and amber beads and raw amber that's worked into beads and silks that are coming from the east as well and what they were discovering, people like uh, Soren Sinbeik and others, Blomqvist and various others, so many names that I will forget that if people buy my book, they, they can definitely get all, all the references. But what they were where they were essentially saying is that the way that, you know, places like a Hedebu or a Birka or a Kaupang, these are very well-known trading sites in, in, in Scandinavia, you know what what marked them out as being different was that you know they had they had volumes and they had a variety of these long distance either trade items or dirhams could both be a, a you know a tradable commodity and something silver something that you want but also be used as, as a currency to buy the commodities of, of, of things that you want so they looked at these sites and someone like Longfist would then say, okay, what's connecting these sites? They seem the logic behind the kingdom that we know historically after this point seems to sort of coordinate with, with the markets and these markets that have these long range commodities and these long range currencies. So you look at something like Norway comes from the North Way, the name comes from a, a trade and communications route. And we look at connections between Birka, you know, and, and Gotland. The island of Gotland is a big trading centre, although it doesn't have that Viking Age doesn't have a major individual trading site. Gotland's a very particular case, but you look at the connections they have with the East and then connections, obviously, that places like Kaupang um, have and Hedebu um, have with the West. So essentially, I thought, okay, historically, it's been suggested that, you know, we know that Dublin and New York were connected. And if you look at the, the data sets relating to sort of these trade items that fit with this sort of mid-9th, mid-10th 10th century period, where, you know, these silks and amber and dirhams and the weights that are used to weigh silver that's used as currency, bullion currency, as we call it, I imagine we'll talk about later. And people like the brilliant John Sheehan would then say, okay, other bits of, of jewellery and other things seem to be coming into Dublin uh, at this time as well. Then I suddenly thought, okay, well, it looks like you've got a similar situation in Dublin and York. 
that you're having in Scandinavia and something, you know, Alfred Smith had looked at earlier as well, but he didn't have the amazing data that we that we have now. So essentially that's what I did. I sort of looked yeah, it's like like all research. You do the lit review and you do the historiography and you go, what are people being suggesting? And you go, okay, that's an interesting idea. My data actually that kind of rings a bell. And then you look at people that have looked at it theoretically on a longer term period. And that's that's these brilliant archaeologists in Scandinavia. So that's why I thought, okay, maybe what's happening in Dublin and York is something that they're basically copying from what they've experienced or or, or witnessed in, in Scandinavia. And I know that from this work that these Scandinavian academics have done. So essentially, that's why um, I focus, a very long-winded answer, but that's why I focus on, 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 on Dublin and York. Brilliant stuff. Okay, so so Dublin was founded in 840, 841. Uh, York was a pre-existing Roman town coming from Jorvik, Vic being uh, a Roman market. And what, York was taken by the Vikings in the 860s, is that correct? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm terrible with dates. It's 867. They sort of take it and sort of temporarily lose it and then take it back again. Just on the, the dates, again, very interesting because it does have a, it does have a ramification for how we understand what, what what's going on. So I think if we start with 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 Dublin, go to York, just for the chronology, so I don't confuse myself. Never mind any of the listeners. Yeah, as you say, you know, the early forties, Dublin is founded by a group of Vikings, uh, and there's a lot of speculation over where they're from. And then something again happens in the early 850s and by about 853, depending on how you read the books. And at this point, I would say, you know, pause the podcast and and find anything by Claire Downham and also Dirk Steinforth, who talk about what's happening historically in the Irish Sea region very well. And Dublin, Claire's an absolute genius for these things. So read her stuff. And essentially reading what Claire and, and Dirk and other people said I sort of put two and two together and may, maybe made four and possibly made five. But if there one, there are readings of it where you can look at that essentially southern Scandinavians, more Danish. I mean, Danes and Norwegians, you can't really differentiate at this stage. And we'll talk about that hopefully later. What I discuss is you know, southern Scandinavians and southern Scandinavian style economies. But essentially what I think happens in about 853 is the, the group or the leaders who are in the ascendancy after that point would think of themselves as whether they're from Norway or, or or Denmark might think of themselves as Danish or at least southern Scandinavians. People in, in Kaupang and the Oslo Fjord region would think themselves closer perhaps to people in, in Denmark and Hedebu style markets than Arctic Norway, say, or, or or northern Sweden. So that's I think that's important, but we can leave that for the moment. And and so that after that period what happens in England, of course, is the Great Army, uh, mid-860s, they come in, and that appears to be elements of Vikings from all over, but probably from being operated in, in, in Francia, what is, you know, in France and Belgium, and coming from, again, these southern parts of, of Scandinavia in the main. And ultimately, they take York in 6667. At that point, it becomes interesting because I think, you know, essentially you've got Southern Scandinavian elements in ascendancy in, in Dublin, or certainly if they're not Southern Scandinavian, they that's where they align themselves with ultimately. So, if, you know, it, you know all, all roads lead to Rome or Dublin or, or, or Jorvik in, in that point of view. And yeah, so they're, you know, ascendancy in Dublin and they're ascendancy in Jorvik. 
And I think, again, if you look in the historical evidence, again, look at Claire and, and various people for that instead of me, uh, certainly first, if, if you look at that, you can interpret it that, you know, the Ivor or whatever and, and Olaf, the people that are involved at that period, um, and you, you you hear in the Irish sources and the, the, the Anglo-Saxon sources, I think they're probably the same people. And I think this speaks to that connection, basically the same the same sort of people that are involved in Dublin are the ones that are later involved in the Great Army and they take Jorvik and there's very much a sort of conscious decision that these two sort of great markets would work very well in the way that they've seen. I think ultimately coming from some southern Scandinavia, they've seen working in southern Scandinavia and they've seen working in the Baltic and in and obviously the Rus areas as well, which we might talk about later. So Essentially, I think that's important just to get, you know, certainly my my take on what's happening in Dublin and York and this connection between these individuals and, and the war bands and the groups. And then that makes sense of, of everything I think comes afterwards. But, you know, other opinions are are available. The brilliant thing about your research is that there's been this kind of confusion about why there wasn't necessarily a Viking market town on the west coast of Britain whether that be Scotland or in England, though Chester seems maybe like it had some Viking connections, possibly. But what you have established is what you've coined the, the Quairdale Corridor. Could you talk a bit more about this land bridge? Um, yes, there's this corridor, and it's certainly something that other people are, are looked at and have looked at. My my friend Courtney Buchanan's have looked at stray finds and something in sort of northern England, southern Scotland. And at this point, it's best not to think of a border there at all. But we're, we're essentially lots of people have looked at you know these east west connections, whether it's Clyde Forth through the central belt of Scotland, you know, between essentially between Glasgow and Edinburgh, or whether it's across the trans a trans Pennine route. So the Pennines being essentially the mountains that separate, I better get this right, so Yorkshire and, and Lancashire, and then Northumbria and, and Cumbria. Essentially, it is quite permeable. We know that there were still existing Roman roads going east-west across the, the fines certainly speak to that. And we know, I think from various other sources that these routeways been obviously not being maintained, but you know, decent metal surfaces that you could cross in 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 winter. You might not want to, but you certainly you certainly could in, in poor weather. You could still cross east to west across the north of what is now uh, England. So this corridor basically, in fact I call it after the Curedale, Curedale horde, again, my princesses and are generally terrible. But just for background, the Curdale Hordes dates to about 905, 910. You want to read James Graham Campbell and various people, brilliant people about these sort of things in more in more detail. But it kind of looks like it's a horde that's been put together by Vikings that have strong connections to both Dublin and York. And interestingly, this is in a period between 902 and 917 when the Irish kings have, have kept um, certainly the Scandinavian leaders, um, someone like Lindsay Simpson, I think was absolutely correct thinking that you probably took it over as a going concern, you know, that you keep the merchants there, but you kick out the leaders and the leaders seem to skulk around the, uh, you know, the Irish Sea, there's Isle of Man, you talked about Chester earlier, there's activity at Chester between Vikings and Anglo-Saxons, and there's you know activity at beach markets potentially in, in Isle of Man and, and Mells and the world and places like that. Essentially, it looks like there's a sort of elite that are skulking around with lots of money, designs on taking back Dublin, because if I'm correct and there's a logic behind, you, you want to have these 
two nodal markets and connect them up and then connect those two markets to to, to Scandinavia and the Baltic and, and, and the East properly, that um, you, you want to try and get money together and people together to try and take Dublin back. So potentially this hoard is is connected to, to, to this group. So groups connected to that it has, um, if I remember correctly, it has, you know, Fairly freshly minted coins from from York and just a lot of materials, kind of stuff that you would expect from people with lots of money and influence in Dublin and the Irish Sea region. So I think what you possibly got there is a sort of physical evidence of this this roadway, this connection, this communications route, probably using the Roman roads, certainly using Romans, I would say, between between York and Dublin, and then maybe via places like the Isle of Man, new research is, is always coming through there and on, on what they're finding in terms of beach markets on, around that, that period. And they've, they've got dirhams there now as well. So I think essentially this is the main routeway for this Viking market kingdom. And it's quite difficult to keep open just with topography and the mountains and, you know, the the Strathclyde Britons and the Northumbrians and the Mercians and everyone will have a, have a say. And there's definitely a lot of movement around there in terms of what you'd loosely think of as, as borders, but we probably really shouldn't think of it as that. But it's quite a difficult route to keep open. So it's probably going to be co- open intermittently, but it but it is there. And I know your research sort of looking at burials uh, and my research are kind of looking at the hoards and the, the, the single finds of generally sort of silver currency items that it looks like yeah this is a route that is used certainly in the late ninth and early early 10th century which which fits really well other routeways would have uh, existed the women routeways around scotland um i just think you know these least cost path things that a lot of uh, good friends sort of um, look at now as well in terms of archaeology that the the best way to do it is if you can secure the safety of your merchant caravan or whatever that you can you can take that across a shorter more reliable route rather than having to go around the very treacherous seas around scotland so essentially what i think this corridor is 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 the, is the main routeway that links and makes sense of of having dublin and and Jorvik. it's interesting because then it's suggesting that it's less of a, a sea kingdom and that there was some territorial expansion and possibly a pre-modern idea about colonization, which I know is a tricky word, especially when you head back into prehistory, but it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the use of the word colonization and, and obviously um, rightly it's, you know, it's, 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 it's discussed a lot these days, particularly in terms with the British Empire, say that the thing about the British Empire is that it started out, I think, a lot more like the sort of trade empires um, or these trade kingdoms, um, these network kingdoms, you know, the Blomquist term um, that I, I, I'm thinking of, because the original British Empire was like before this, all the, the the worst successes of the African land grabs. The, it was very much an empire made of, of trading centers on coasts and on rivers. So, in, I think the best example of this is what the the British were doing in 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 uh, in sort of South America. They they would be interested in ports like Buenos Aires, whatever, or, or, or major cities like that. And they would want to control the trade and they'd want to control the the, the money, you know, the finances. And that was brilliant from their perspective because they could uh, get the money with the least risk, you didn't have to put lots of people in, you didn't have to risk, you know, disease and uh, the dangers of going into the interior as they would have seen it. And it was only later on 
you know, when they, again, had this sort of idea that you needed to have as much land as possible, and that's what an empire was, and all these false ideas about civilizing. But that's that's obviously another another issue. But I think essentially that that British Empire really was it was a it was a kingdom of trade routes and and communications routes, and generally they were by sea uh, or by by river. But you know, occasionally, yeah, you would go across land. It's again, it's these least costs of routes. You know, you, you don't think, oh, we're maritime people, and we always have to take the ship. If you can take a portage route, you know, drag a ship over an isthmus, or you can use Roman roads. That's what you use. So. I think colonization is is interesting that certainly the you know the great army appear to sort of settle down, but I think what well, the elites they don't you know care about that. I mean, once these guys have finished being useful to them, I doubt they care too much. They just wanted to have the prestige of essentially having their own kingdom, and they then wanted to um, to be able to get the most efficient way to get to toll to get tolls and taxes of that so colonization maybe in a sort of an older early early modern sense but not in this again the sort of the 19th century where it is essentially the way we understand colonization at the moment well i know that like steve ashby and sorensen back have definitely talked about how like silver is a driving force behind the viking age and you have done a lot of archaeological work with durums which are islamic coinage could you talk a little bit more about how these terms have played into your research and and what you've concluded? Yes, dirhams are they're beautiful. It's certainly something you should the listener when they've got a chance if they haven't seen them have a look. It's a beautiful Arabic script on them, and they'll have verses from the Quran, and they're just they're just beautifully designed and beautifully made, very high quality silver, and they are produced in the Islamic world. You, they're mints big mints for the caliphate in uh, Baghdad. There are also essentially emirates that are loosely connected to the caliphate. And they can, they're in places like ones that are very influential, the Samanids, who are in essentially parts of you know, Uzbekistan and places like that, and, and more into Central Asia. And there are places, mints like Samarkand and places like that. And essentially, there's huge wealth. They've got you know, huge trade empire of their own in the, the Islamic world and huge silver reserves. So you put two and two together and you come up with a very high quality coinage that's being produced from the from, from the century onwards. And of course, where you've got money and trades, you have interest from our Scandinavian friends. And of course, with the work of our your friend and mine, um, Kat Jarman, as well as my work here uh, and various other brilliant scholars, we're now looking at, at what again is what is happening in, for want of a better term, Eastern Europe, um, you know, in sort of uh, Ukraine, uh, Russia, and obviously there are issues there now that partially relate to the the Viking Age. Kiev is a is a Rus center as well, so there's a lot of historical ramifications that are still being felt to this day. So essentially, what happens is Eastern Europe and the the Rus territories there, and the various sort of kingdoms, the Bulgars and the Volga, between the sort of Rus. Uh, kingdoms of Rus are probably essentially seem to come from sort of Sweden originally and very quickly become, I think the term Slavicized. So within a couple of generations, the, the Scandinavian teams become very Slavic as well, but they're established around the river systems in Russian Ukraine and they interact with other river kingdoms. Again, more of these trade communication kingdoms like the, the Volga 
Bulgars, and they interact with the immense wealth of the Eastern Roman world in Constantinople. And then obviously the, the main the main center of, of wealth and trade is the Islamic world, the Caliphate and, and the Emirates that are that are surrounding them. So essentially the again very long-winded, but the result of this is that whatever is being traded, and whether that's uh, slaves or amber or very often I think we think furs being traded from the northern world. We'll talk about more about the trade goods later, but essentially whatever is being traded is coming down these river systems. It is being exchanged for silver in the form of these dirham silver coins. Now, there are some debates about whether the Vikings are going, okay, we will take the silver as currency, but actually we just want the silver. We don't then reuse it as currency. We don't see it as money. We just see it as a shiny thing we can maybe melt down and make into arm rings or whatever. Um, I think essentially what I argue is they would we see it as both, but they would certainly also see it just as just as easily and use it just as regularly as as a form of currency. So what happens with that, of course, is this these dirham coins and in the hundreds of thousands are entering probably in the millions. We've just we discovered many, many, many thousands of them. So there are probably millions originally coming in yet to be discovered or be melted down. And um, they're coming into Scandinavia, and then what happens there is they get into these network kingdoms. The Gotlanders seem to have their own sort of network kingdom but they kind of very much do their own thing but you've got the swedish network kingdoms against all blankfist you want to read on this um niels blankfist and the danish southern scandinavian network kingdom so the head of the cowpang and southern norway sort of kingdom they start to bring in this silver and then of course what happens is that because again if we're looking at my market kingdom that's connecting dublin and york you that kingdom is set up to 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 link into the wealth that's coming through you know, from Northern Europe and, and, and from the Baltic that's coming ultimately from Eastern Europe and, and you know, Central Asia and also places like Baghdad. So these coins end up being used in circulation. So hence how we get them in hordes like Curedale and we get them as single finds on Great Army uh, winter camp sites. So when this Great Army is moving around, taking places like York, when they have these sites, they're using these coins, probably as currency, and that's how they get into to sort of the Irish and sort of British world. So these coins have travelled a long way and they've been viewed as two things and been viewed as very high quality silver. So that you can use them to weigh how much the currency is worth, um, but you can also melt them down and, and make them into display jewellery as as well. And we can talk about bullion economies and, and, and all that sort of later. But essentially, that's essentially you, the, these coins get into go through various of these sort of network kingdoms. Some of them are in, in Eastern Europe and in Baltic and, and some of them and one of them, I think, particularly is in is in ireland and, and britain so that's that was the, the way in for you know looking at these coins because you think well that's curious that they've traveled so far but then once you go back in stages you can see how logically they, they might have ended up there this episode will be part one of two make sure to check back in to hear the conclusion of our conversation including tom's favorite funniest and most moving excavations Oh.